The following podcast is an audio version of a live show that takes place daily on Crowdcast. To join our live audience, visit our Crowdcast website at crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. That's crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. We're not allowed to have fun anymore. So lieu of fun, let's at least not be bored. Come on, Greek chorus. And it's we're live. It is. Wednesday, December 29th, 5.03 p.m. It is the eve of New Year's Eve, which uh, is a kind of meta thing, but we, since we live in Mark Zuckerberg's universe, uh, everything has to be meta. And uh, so, you know, that's how it is. Uh, Scott has a very important update for you all on... Um, on uh, uh, the brisket matter. Uh, and so rather than uh, doing the monologue today, I'm just gonna turn it over to him for uh, the important update to his yeah. uh, Where's the Lie story from the other day. So um, thank you very much, Ben. Um, I would, so the first thing to say is that I got a lot of skepticism about um, the story, people trying to poke holes in it, people saying there's no way you, there's no 25 mile an hour speed limits in, in, in Oakland, of which I then pointed out that 25 miles per hour is the official speed limit in residential and business districts in California with the DMV link. Um, and uh, other people then um, said, there's no way you were going 95. And I said, I wasn't claiming I was going 95. I was saying that the police said I was going 95. Um, uh, and then, so I called the butcher um, yesterday, which I found the butcher, it was Oakland Kosher Foods. Um, and I uh, spoke to, um, uh, hey, Kate. Hi, I'm like loving, the, I'm loving, I'm loving this. Tell okay. me everything. <laughs> I want okay. to know everyone and how you like, you own them. All okay. right, well, well I, let's let him finish. Sorry. Okay. So, <laughs> so, I spoke, I called Oakland Kosher Foods right as they opened in the morning and the person who answered the phone gave me the owner um, and I said that I was a customer in the late 80s. Um, they have owned the, 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 the Open Kosher Foods since 1987. Um, uh, he confirmed several things. First of all, that they do on Friday close at 3. Number two, that they um, sold, ha sold at the time cooked brisket. Number three, they sold at the time uh, uh, lemon rosemary chicken, but, and this is a big but. Did you ask for the recipe? Sorry. Oh no, I didn't ask. No, I, I should have asked for the recipe. That would have been a great idea, but because I've never been able to recreate, it. I've tried that's many times. Said. Right, that's exactly right. I, I I should have done that, but I um uh, I said, have you? Did you ever have a thing called brisket bonanza? And he said, no. And I said, no sign that ever said brisket bonanza. He goes, not that I can remember, and I've been the owner since that point. So, um, so I Scott was in fact lied. lying. The whole was, thing was fraud. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was not lying. So, first of all, several two. Th I would just point out that even if what I said was not true about the brisket bonanza, I'm not lying because I fully believe it to be true. Number two, if you look up, the, it's a thing called brisket bonanza. Like there's a, a the rabbi cooks. There's a video about the rabbi cooks how he cooks his brisket bonanza. It's like a Jewish thing. Um, and if you doubt me, you're being anti-Semitic. Um, <laughs> so, all right. So okay. all of which is a long way of saying that Scott is not allowed to have fun anymore. <laughs> okay. um, but we are allowed to have Corey Shockey 
which, as I have said before, is about the greatest surrogate for fun in the world. And in addition, uh, Corey, who requires no introduction, and but I feel obliged to say this whenever I introduce her, is the person in the world who gave me the best professional advice <laughs> I have ever received. Corey... Um, Wait, you have professional advice. Oh, that's a long story, and I'm not gonna oh, I'm not gonna tell it now. Um, but Corey has some professional advice today. It's not just a throwaway because Corey began the day with some professional advice for Vladimir Putin, oh. and I think because Corey does in fact give the best professional advice around, uh, Putin really ought to take this, and so I thought we should. Um, uh, um, we should explore the contours of the analysis so that Vladimir Putin um, has the opportunity fully to assimilate it. So, Corey, uh, you know, what, what gives? What, what are you suggesting for uh, Vladimir? So based on the excellent analysis of the Institute for the Study of War and AEI's own um, current threats project, uh, their judgment is that Putin can't sustain the political and economic costs of the invasion of Ukraine that appears imminent with more than 100,000 Russian troops amassed on their border and another 75,000 evidently en route. Um, and I not only um, thought their analysis was interesting. It led me to believe if Putin's not planning to invade Ukraine, what might he be up to? Because there are several gains he could make uh, short of invasion. For example, uh, long-term stationing of Russian troops in Belarus, which would not only be a violation of the sovereignty of Belarus, unless Lukashenko consents to it, which I suspect he would. Um, but a threat to Poland, a threat to the Baltic states, uh, complications should NATO need to reinforce its, its members' territory in the Baltic states and in Poland. Uh, splitting the NATO alliance, although happily, I don't see evidence of that just yet. Um, he could also uh, push the Western countries, which fear a conflict with Russia, including the United States, into preemptive concessions that would change the status quo in Europe to, to Putin's advantage. Uh, what he has asked for in these two treaties he submitted to the United States and the NATO allies is a commitment never to expand NATO, a commitment to carry out no military training or cooperation with non-NATO members. Um, ridiculous on the face of it. And thankfully, NATO has uh, held a terrifically solid line on that. But, uh, but Biden did make a couple of preemptive concessions. I think they were both concessions worth making. But the agreement to uh, holds talks on Russia's preferred security structure in Europe and a, a public statement that the United States uh, would not defend Ukraine militarily if Russia attacked it, which I think was an effort to limit the prospect of either war by miscalculation or spiraling up of the conflict. But just to be clear, that that second concession does not include any commitment not to arm Ukraine, right? That's right. In fact, the United States has troops not only arming, but helping train Ukrainians in the country right now. So does Canada. So do some other NATO allies. Um, so the reason I think Putin should take my advice, unlike... Um, uh, Putin agreeing to a judo competition with you, which of course he would lose, Ben. Um, the reason he should take my advice is that uh, if Russia invades Ukraine, 
I think it will be a successful military operation and a war, a war he would lose because the U.S. and NATO allies would move to defend the territory of the Baltic states. The U.S. only has 400 troops in the Baltics now, uh, but we and others would double down on defending NATO allies. Uh, I think the economic and political sanctions that NATO has already agreed, including bouncing Russia out of the SWIFT payment system, um, would be onerous for Russian businessmen. Um, and of course, my favorite uh, use of the tools of free societies to protect free societies, which is transparency and regulation and the rule of law, none of which Putin can really um, stand as his cyber vigilantism in the aftermath of the Panama Papers release, I think. Uh, harbinges. So, all right. I'm 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 interested in your. We've talked to a number of people about this uh, over the last few months, but I'm interested in your take. Is Putin here primarily interested in the preemptive concessions, or is he actually? smelling blood in the water and says, all right, this is the opportunity to take, uh, you know, Donetsk and, you know, to, you know, maybe not go to Kiev and, but to carve up the thing and, uh, uh, and to create the land bridge to Crimea uh, and, you know, put a bunch of not so little green men in, in, in Donetsk and Luhansk. I, I mean, is, is the idea here to have uh, that you think he's imagining actually doing this, or is the idea that to to bluff us into um, into you know preemptive concessions? So I honestly don't know the answer to that. I suspect it depends on our reaction which so far I think has been, uh, if I were playing Putin's hand, uh, I would look at the Western reaction um, and be surprised that NATO allies had come together so quickly and without meaningful dissent. Um, I would watch the way that the public debate about Nord Stream 2 has changed in Germany that is, uh, no longer is it simply a business deal or a way to get out of having nuclear power plants in Germany, but, but now it's also a geopolitical stake acknowledged in Germany, which was feared by many people um, outside of Germany. So I don't know the answer to it. I think to some extent it depends on what we're doing. Um, and I also think there have been a couple of, couple of other great things. Um, uh, you know, the Secretary of Defense in the U.S. having his Ukrainian counterpart in for a visit, Congress beginning to spool up on the we should be providing more arms to Ukraine. I think if Russia does invade Ukraine, uh, I think um, that you will see a lot more assistance to Ukraine. Also, we shouldn't overlook the fact that the mighty Russian military and its proxies haven't done that well in Donetsk uh, against Ukrainians fighting for their homeland. And I saw a poll just the other day that 58% uh, of Ukrainians want to join NATO as opposed to only 23 who 23% who do not. 24% of Ukrainians uh, volunteered the information that they would be willing to defend their country with a gun in their hand if Russia invades. And so Russia may succeed in taking it, but fail to hold it because they don't have a very good record of countering insurgencies in Chechnya, Afghanistan, and other places. Ben, can I ask a, a point of clarification just really quickly? So Why are you asking my permission? Oh, no, well, <laughs> that's the question. 
Corey, because you're so brilliant, I never want to interrupt you. Um, and there's and I I know so little about this, and so like I'm mostly ever, always just trying to learn from you. But I just am curious. Like you said, there's only 400 troops, uh, American troops, um, that are that can defend the Ukraine. And like, like I'm just kind of curious. Like, but like you say, a gun in there. Like Ukrainians, where like 24 percent of Ukrainians have a gun in their hand, willing to defend. Like, what is the what is the military capacity? Like, I that can't possibly be 400 Americans with guns in their hands. Like, what is the actual military capacity of of America? Like, in to defend like that border. Okay, so let's separate out Ukraine from the Baltic states. Okay, um, I might have misheard you. Sorry. The, the important distinction is that Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia are NATO members. And so right. although there are only 400 troops from the United States stationed in the Baltic states, um, the US and 29 other countries have committed that an attack on one of them would be an attack on all of them. Got so it. you would see a massive reinforcement of the Baltic states if they had been attacked. Ukraine falling outside the NATO commitment um, and President Biden having publicly assured Russia um, <laughs> that uh, the U.S. would not defend Ukraine. Parenthetically, um, the one thing I should have said at the start and want to remind everybody is that Russia and the United States both committed to the sovereignty of Ukraine. Um, the old Minsk agreement. Yes, back at the end of the Cold War, when Ukraine was willing to give up Soviet nuclear weapons stationed on its territory. Which looks so, like a bad deal in retrospect. You know, if, if, if you had to turn back the clock and you said, would Ukraine be a little bit better off today if it said, you know, if when, if, if Vladimir Putin had to think about whether Moscow was going to get dusted before he took Crimea, it would not, like, you know, the argument for nuclear deterrence is not crazy. Okay, so this is, I'm understanding now this delineation between the, like, the Baltic, okay, so I'm like, sorry, I missed that, like, key, like. Yes, yeah, so we would rush to reinforce the Baltics because all the NATO countries um, yes. are committed to mutual defense and also are really scared. You know, NATO defense spending started going up in 2014 uh, after Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Um, and so, uh, you know, Jens Stoltenberg, NATO Secretary General, very graciously gave President Trump credit for that. But the actuality of it is that NATO allies are really nervous about Russian aggression. Um, and I think the speed with which you saw consensus form as Russia's threat became clear this round um, okay. is a testament to that. But Thomas Ilves. Um, yeah. So, I, you know, it's not very often that I get to do the Woody Allen. I, I happen to have uh, Marshall McLuhan right here. But I happen to have a Baltic head of state, former head of state, right here. What does he have to say? Thomas Ilves, welcome. Well, it's great, uh, great to be back here at this very late hour. And um, first of all, I just want to say that... Uh, Corey is just fantastic, and I'm so happy to see her, be able to talk to her. For... But what I did want to say is that the problem with, uh, with these agreements is that Russia is demanding written permanent agreements ple uh, pledging never to do, never to expand NATO again, and all the other things that Corey mentioned, as a country that signed off on the Budapest Memorandum pledging never to invade Ukraine. So how the hell can you take this country seriously? And what, I mean, which is why I, I think that, in fact, Corey's analysis is right. I had one which went further to say, this is all a ploy only to get uh, the U.S. to take him seriously and not ignore him. Um, and 
to begin talks, but he's just doing it in such a typical Putin-esque, clumsy, obnoxious way because he doesn't know how to talk to people politely. Wait, really? This is all just like him making a big deal out of nothing? Like to try to get attention? No, it's to get talks going and who knows where it'll go. But I mean, they were presented as ultimata, saying that you, if you do not do exactly, agree to everything we say, you'll have war, which is not exactly a way to, you know, make friends and influence people. Uh, um, so, uh, because we live in such debased times, I'm uh, I, I, I'm I, I'm going to bring up a, a, a tweet thread as a as a counter argument. Um, but um, Dmitry Alperovich um, uh, wrote. I, I'm sure people uh, um, uh, on the panel have read have have read this thread it was it, 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 he made a very persuasive case for uh why he thinks why he's so confident um that uh Putin will invade um Dmitry uh, is a former uh the founder of CrowdStrike and um he's very very knowledgeable person and, may, and let me just raise some of the issues that he raised and just to hear what um, uh, experts um, think. So the first thing he mentioned is that like he hundred over a hundred thousand uh, troops and um, and and um, artillery and machinery. It's a very expensive thing to do. Um, uh, either you can't keep them there indefinitely. Either you do it now or you, you you're going to have to leave very very soon. The diplomatic um, uh, demands that have been made by Putin have been very public and have been almost absurd um, in the way in which um, there's no way that the West can accede to them. Uh, as for the claim that um, uh, the sanctions, um, the West will impose sanctions, the West is already constantly imposing sanctions, Russia has learned how to live with them. Um, they took over Crimea and the West didn't throw them out of SWIFT, the SWIFT banking system. Um, finally, that Putin is getting up um, in, in, in age. He doesn't have much time, probably in power left. This is a, as good a time as any to, in, uh, to invade um, with the world um, uh, preoccupied with COVID and having stepped down from um, Afghanistan, there's no appetite to engage in further um, uh, uh, long insurgencies. And finally, that the Russia has um, enormous, uh, has centuries long uh, history of dealing with insurgencies in this region and that one um, strategic goal would be to cut Ukraine in half um, uh, and therefore make it virtually impossible, even if there was a de um, uh, popular demand for uh, to join NATO, actually strategically impossible with half the country being occupied. I was wondering what um, Corey and Tomas thought of that, those arguments. Corey? Yes, yeah, so um, I have enormous admiration for Dmitry Alperovitch. I think he's really smart and he's really good on these issues. Um, and those are, that's a strong case. Um, I am more persuaded though, that um, if Putin wanted to take Ukraine, uh, he wouldn't leave us time to organize ourselves. I don't understand the 100,000 troops, another 75,000 making their way towards it and not doing anything. That's what made that, as much as anything else, persuaded me that this is the use of military force for political purposes, not for actual invasion. The second thing that persuades me of it is my AEI colleague, Leon Aaron, uh, had a piece a couple of weeks ago arguing that in his judgment, this is internally focused on Putin's 
part. That is, this is about, uh, uh, you know, making a play for popular support. Because we did see his popularity spike among Russians after the seizure of Crimea. Um, I do think, though, that, um, for example, the fact that we didn't kick him out of SWIFT after Crimea. Um, I don't, if I were Putin, I wouldn't doubt that we would do it this time, since we just publicly announced we're going to do it this time if he invades. And it's not just the United States making that decision. It, NATO's much more united in response to this than NATO was in 2014, when the shock of what was happening was, uh, the shock of the new was still taking hold. And I think the last thing is that um, I doubt to the extent that, that Russians have the ability to affect Putin's choices. Um, I don't think I would be confident if I were Putin uh, that you could take half of Crimea and subdue it. Uh, the you mean Ukraine take half of Ukraine? Excuse me, yes, take half of Ukraine um, and subdue it. In part because the seizure of Crimea and the, uh, the low simmering conflict in the Donbass has actually created Ukrainian national identity and that national identity is Western. And so the progress they have made against corruption, the deepening of ties with the West, the strengthening of Ukrainians military, Ukraine's military, and the public commitment by NATO countries that if Russia does invade, um, that we will continue and ramp up the assistance we are giving the Ukrainians. Leads me, you know, this is a close call. It's not an easy call. And um, uh, while I would despair if Dimitri's right on this one, I think he may be. I come down in a slightly different place because of those factors. So D Dimitri presumably isn't saying there's a hundred percent chance that he's right, and you're not saying that there's a hundred percent chance that he's wrong. So. I would just say that Dimitri was, I think he used a highly confident. Um, yeah, but, Dimit uh, but, but Dimitri always speaks in high levels of confidence. It's, it's his rhetorical style. I mean, would he, would he, I, I, I mean, I guess, I guess what I'm saying is what, what, what percent chance do you assign to there being a military confrontation here? If we say Dimitri is 70% confident there's going to be one, what percent confident are you that there isn't going to be one? Uh, probably 55 or 60 percent confident. Okay. I, mean, I think How this is a legitimately close call. Oh, but the one other thing I probably should have mentioned is that I think, um, you know, uh, the Russians offering these two ludicrous uh, treaties, uh, I can't tell whether that's a move that the starting of negotiations allows them to step down from, from the escalation they had engendered, or whether they're so obviously unacceptable to the United States and NATO allies that this will be a, um, you know, that Putin will use this as an excuse to go into Ukraine, mm -hmm. which is, I think, an argument for the Biden administration, having said, we'll hold talks over it. Drag this out, um, leave Russia sustaining 175,000 troops in Belarus, which, and Western, and the Russian Western military district, which sad news it for Belarus, but better than it being a launching pad into also invading Ukraine. Tomas, what do you I think, think of, of, of uh, Dimitri's uh, claims and Corey's responses to them? Yeah, well, I, I tend to side with Corey. I mean, I read I read his uh, thread, which was well argued. Nonetheless, I mean, it doesn't take into account a number of things. First of all, again, the huge distrust that the West has regarding anything, any kind of agreements with Putin after his previous behavior. A. B, the arsenal of what can be used 
uh, and that has not been used uh, for sanctions. There's a piece today by uh, by Anders uh, Ostlund about basically saying it's cut back about three percent of GDP growth per year, leaving not much GDP growth per year for the past seven years. But those are all fairly minor sanctions compared to well, SWIFT is one thing. Secondly, the U.S. has banned buying. Uh, forbidding people from buying uh, Russian bonds on the primary market. But that's kind of that doesn't do anything because um, <laughs> they sell it on the secondary market. However, if Westerners cannot buy Russian bonds on the secondary bond market, well, you're going to have a lot of really annoyed oligarchs there uh, who are not going to be happy. Um, I mean, I, I mean, my gut feeling is more and more that uh, we're in this kind of 1964 phase where people are getting really exasperated with Khrushchev's plans to grow corn in the Soviet Union, which led to the worst harvest they ever had. And then he was deposed in October uh, 1964 for his, quote, harebrained schemes. And I have a, I mean, as much as, uh, I mean, if I give uh, sort of, uh, the I agree with the 55%, I also have a feeling of about 15 to 20% of just, you know, Sechin and all these other people saying, okay, we, we're, we're well enough in power, enough of these harebrained schemes by a guy who is, you know, in his last moments or his last years, which he is, um, where he wants to gain some kind of place in Russian history um, without really thinking through what he's doing. And if that leads to major economic issues for the oligarch class in his in, around him, um, then it's, uh, he may have some serious problems domestically. And uh, when it comes to insurgency fighting, Yes, the Russians have had a lot of experience with extreme brutality in fighting insurgencies in uh, mainly in Afghanistan and, also and Chechnya and Chechnya. Okay, then I mean the other on the other equation. I mean the Ukrainians into the 1950s were having pitched tank battles with the NKVD because they kept their tanks under haystacks. I mean. So it's not as if these people are not fighters. I don't know who said it, but war is the crucible of nations. Seven years of war in Ukraine have had a completely different effect on the Ukrainian population than the past seven years has had, has had on the Russian population. I mean, if you, and when you have up to 100,000 not special operations, whatever troops there, yes, that's not enough. But then you're going to have to bring in conscripts. And then you're going to have lots of car, lots of, of uh, semi-trucks painted Cargo 200, which is how they put their, what they tr uh, put their body bags in. And that's also not something that Putin really wants to have. And finally, having a Chechnya-like mass bombing uh, a la Grozny of Kiev is not going to win lots of hearts and minds for Russia in the least. Should, um, should I, Scott? Go ahead. Okay. So I, I just um, so I think there's a there's the strategic question here is what's going to happen, but there's this, the ideological question about whether you know what I'm going to stop because the man's here. Um, <laughs> um, you know that's this is the thing about in uh, in lieu of fun. Wait, Dimitri, we can't hear you. You're muted. I've unmuted you. I just tweeted it, Dimitri. Uh, I just I was just going to join and listen like in. I'm literally just up on my phone. minutes, and then he was here. No, so thank you know, for coming in. We, we, this started as a conversation with Corey about her Atlantic article this morning. I didn't know that President Ilves was going to show up. They started talking about why they both disagree with you about the likelihood of war. And here you are. So uh, how much of this did you hear? I just joined in the last minute. I'm literally just back from the gym, so I wasn't prepared to be on. <laughs> that. That's okay. You look you look fabulous. Um, 
So make the make the case that that Corey is and and Tomas are wearing the tiara of optimism, and that Putin means <laughs> me, means military business in in Ukraine, and uh, that we should be more afraid. They're saying fifty five percent no war. Uh, what what percent war are you betting on? Uh, unfortunately, I'm at ninety, and uh, this this is not something that I'm pleased with. I, I hope I'm very wrong, but I think you know, as I showed in my thread, um, there is numerous indications, both on the ground, from a military deployment perspective, from the cyber intrusions that they're doing, uh, that they're preparing for war. But most importantly, is the rhetoric, uh, both the rhetoric that they're using in diplomatic channels, but also domestically, which I'm watching very closely, of the propaganda on Russian television and Russian media um, that is preparing the population for war. You just wouldn't do that unless you were really serious about this being a, an option. And particularly with the red lines that they've portrayed, um, not just regarding the NATO expansion, which I think that you could actually get to, some sort of a agreement on, on at least a pause of, of the process for Ukraine joining NATO, but the fact that they've talked about uh, NATO advisors selling weapons to to, to Ukraine, but also uh, positioning of forces, NATO forces in uh, Ukraine, uh, I mean, not in Ukraine even, but uh, in other NATO countries, which would definitely be unacceptable uh, to any NATO member. So I, I just think that they've really uh, cornered themselves uh, rhetorically and it's really, really hard to back down from this uh, and still declare victory, both for domestic population, but also uh, to maintain international prestige. So I want to let uh, Corey respond to this, but I'm, I want to first prompt you on a point that she makes in her Atlantic article and that Tomas emphasized uh, before you came on, which is that um, uh, it is one thing to have a successful military operation to cut Ukraine in half or to, you know, eat up a bunch of it and expand the autonomous oblasts of, of Donetsk and Luhansk. It's quite another thing to, to uh, hold over the long term a land bridge to Crimea or to, uh, to dismember a nation that seven years of war has really emphasized a pre-existing national consciousness for. Do you disagree with Corey that, you know, if if Putin were uh, rash enough to do what you think he's going to do, that this would end very badly for him, though perhaps even worse for the people of Ukraine? I don't. Uh, and I think it all depends on how ambitious they get. If they get into Western Ukraine, I absolutely agree. It would be a total disaster for them. Um, if they stay on the eastern side of the Dnieper River, uh, it's not clear to me that it would be as bad. And, and if they and, limit... And just to be clear for people who don't know this region, uh, Eastern Ukraine is much more uh, Russified pro and, uh, and pro-Russian politically. Western Ukraine... The language gets a little bit more like Polish. It's a, it's a, it's much more the center of Ukrainian nationalism. Is that fair? Uh, absolutely. But but also you have to appreciate the deep, deep expertise that the Russians have fighting insurgencies. It's not just Afghanistan. It's not just Chechnya. It is Syria. Let's let's not forget that. But it's also Crimea. It's also Donetsk and Lugansk. There were uh, there were opposition people in those regions that were pro-Ukrainian that they mopped up literally within weeks uh, because the GRU is incredibly efficient, incredibly brutal. So is the FSB. Um, trust me, they are on the ground in Eastern Ukraine right now. I have zero doubt identifying people that would be potential insurgency leaders, potential opposition candidates, and they would be prepared to eliminate those people and neutralize them within hours of the invasion. They're very, very good at this in a way that frankly the United States is not. So uh, I, I don't uh, discount the possibility that they would actually be able to control it through ruthless mechanisms and through incredibly efficient intelligence operations um, in, in, a, in, a, uh, in a fairly bloodless way. Again, it all depends on how ambitious they get, and I don't think that they could do it in Western Ukraine. And, but, but, but by the way, they've, uh, the, the Russian um, people have fought three insurgencies, at least three insurgencies, in Ukraine itself 
over the last few hundred years. Um, most recently in the 1920s through the 1950s, where there was a number of opposition uh, movements, the Bandera movements and others, uh, post the uh, creation of the Soviet Union. So, uh, you know, the uh, NKVD or the Cheka uh, that preceded, of course, the, the current FSB and the SVR, know very well how to fight, fight in that domain. Most of that insurgency was in Western Ukraine, by the way, which is why I think they uh, really appreciate the difficulty of engaging there. But on the eastern side of, of, of the river, I think they could get it done. Corey, your, your thoughts in response. Uh, so, uh, hi. hi, Dimitri. Uh, I thought your thread was super persuasive. I guess I have a couple of slightly different takes than you do. One is that um, I don't think I don't share your view that Russia is ruthlessly efficient and good at fighting counterinsurgencies. I don't think Chechnya goes very well for them. I don't think Afghanistan goes very Chechnya, well for the them. Second Chechen war? And I do think you don't think went well for them. Uh, do they win hearts and minds? Do they create a sense of connectivity? Do they, I mean they succeed in putting uh, somebody they like in power and in being incredibly brutal in the doing of it? Um, do I think that would succeed in Ukraine? No, I don't think I do. Um, I think Ukrainians' willingness to resist, uh, especially as you suggest in the Western part. The second thing is that I do think since 2014, uh, countries of the West have given a fair amount of training and assistance to the Ukrainians. I think the Ukrainian military has the potential to hold their own against the Russians which would be something I would be really nervous about if I were Putin, because uh, trying and failing, especially with a force that large, um, would be uh, catastrophic to his domestic prospects. I guess the third way, place I differ slightly from your assessment is uh, the other thing I would worry about if I were Putin uh, is that taking whatever of Ukraine he could hold uh, will result in uh, the NATO alliance deploying enough troops in the Baltic states and Poland and Romania and Bulgaria and maybe even Turkey um, to, to cause a net loss of security for Russia and a net loss of prestige for Russia. Maybe he doesn't care about those things and is so paranoid that uh, he thinks that would have happened anyway, but it didn't happen. It, and in fact, NATO has been really cautious about having the military ability, about deploying the military ability to protect NATO member states that were formerly part of the Soviet Union or the Warsaw Pact. And so I do think he, those are the reasons that I come to a slightly different judgment than you do. Although, as I said before, Dimitri, I'm only 55% confident I'm right, which leaves a big gaping 45%. Oh, geez, he's really persuasive. I'm um, all right. So we're going to get Tomas to settle this. Hang on, Dimitri. We're going to go... See who whom Tomas finds uh, more persuasive here in a moment. And then we're going to let Dimitri respond. But before we do either of those things, Scott has a question. Actually, I, I, it's much more important that Tomas um, respond, and then I'll get it at the end. Okay. All right, um, Tomas, the floor is yours. I mean, he can be. Uh, I mean, okay, I, I can grant you that all of the indicators show that he will invade. The problem is, who's thinking about what happens afterwards? I mean, this is the question, is where is, say Russia is successful at getting up to the Dnieper, subduing uh, through brutal actions the population there with a constant... Uh, insurgency going on, people crossing the river, blowing stuff up, all of that typical 
insurgency war stuff. And then where is he? He doesn't have SWIFT. He's, he, he's cut out of the secondary bond market. Most likely, uh, uh, countries will be so aghast that they will go and start freezing the assets of the oligarchs. Uh, travel for ordinary Russians will cease to exist, especially for oligarchs, it will cease to exist. Uh, you know, people like Dmitry Kozak, who flew to Berlin today to meet, I mean, he's under sanctions, but he's still going to Berlin, having been one of the architects of the Crimea invasion. I mean, all of that will end. You will be completely isolated and pushed into a, the kind of situation of North Korea. Now, the only thing they will then have is cutting off gas supplies to Germany, and Germany will scream, holy bloody murder. But what are they going to do? So in other words, what's the end point here? So um, I want to take one piece of Dimitri's side on this, which is uh, Jim Mattis always reminds me uh, not to be a better strategist than your enemy. And Tumas, it may be that it may be that Putin is a tactician and not a strategist, because that's fairly consistent with prior behavior, right? That he doesn't think about the long term; he picks up gains in the short term, because those accrue to more. And he's testing the edge of our willingness. I mean, he's playing the gap brilliantly between what we say we are going to do and what we are actually willing to do in Syria, in Afghanistan, and other places. So, so can I can I respond? So let me let me address the this one by one. So one on insurgency. Uh, Corey's absolutely right. Uh, Russians don't try to win hearts and minds. Uh, you know they follow the Stalin doctrine, which is it's better to be feared than loved, and uh, it has worked very well for Stalin, as we know, to pacify Chechnya, to pacify numerous countries with absolute brutality. Um, it doesn't work over you know centuries because ultimately uh, the nationalist movements uh, revolt, but. Uh, for Putin's lifetime, it can work uh, very well, and it's clear, even domestically, he has chosen brutality and authoritarianism, uh, suppressing all opposition, including even the pacified parties like the Communist Party, which for three decades has been allowed to exist as sort of a token opposition force. They're now cracking down even on them. Uh, so I have zero doubt that uh, with absolute brutality, with the efficiency of Russian intelligence services, which are still one of the top intelligence services in the world, um, they can uh, be very, very effective, at least in eastern Ukraine, particularly when you have a population that's relatively pro-Russian. And I, I have to, uh, to tell you one, one quick story, uh, Corey. I remember this article um, even today. I think it was in 2015. It may have been The Guardian. And uh, they were interviewing this jihadist, this Chechen jihadist uh, in Istanbul who was on the way to Syria to fight with ISIS. And they asked him, why are you going to Syria to fight with him uh, against the Americans and this, against Assad? You can go fight the Russians for your own country. And he said, well, because in Chechnya, um, I would be dead. Uh, he literally said, you know, we, we are up in the mountains, hold up. We have to come down from the mountains into the villages to get food and supplies. And we know that the minute we come down, someone in that village is going to rat us out because if they don't, the FSB is going to come in and uh, mow them all down. He's literally uh, saying it, it, it would be safer for me to be in, Chech uh, in Syria than it would be for me to be in Chechnya. So that's how the Russians today fight counterinsurgencies. I agree that in the late parts of the Soviet Union, in the disastrous 1990s, it was a very different story. But Putin has really reconstituted the Russian military, reconstituted Russian intelligence services, uh, in many ways to model what was uh, being done in the earliest stages of the Soviet Union when they were extremely effective at suppressing insurgencies. Um, so I, I think that they will be uh, very brutal, but also very effective um, uh, if, if their uh, objectives are, are modest. Uh, Ukraine military being able to stand up to Russia, I just don't think that there is um, anyone that seriously believes that they can put up a, a major fight, not with the long-range uh, long fire advantages that the Russians have. They're going to um, use their rockets, they're going to use their UAVs, they're going to use their artillery systems to decimate 
in a very targeted fashion. Most of the Ukrainian military units that are on the eastern part of the Dnepr before the tanks even roll across the border. The Ukrainians will have no chance against that. They have nothing to match it. Their air defense systems are not that great, and they're going to be taken out within the first hours um, uh, by the Russians um, with the very advanced weaponry that they have uh, building up on, on the border there now. So I just think that the first uh, uh, first days, really, of the war, it will be an air war, it will be an artillery war, it will be a UAV war to take down major units of the Ukrainian army, and then the tanks roll in and mop it up and push the Ukrainians to, to, the, to the Dnepr River. I think they can do it in 30 days. And not unlike how the U.S. has fought uh, in uh, Iraq, too, um, and, and drive to, to their objectives. Uh, on NATO military deployments, uh, Corey, I think you're absolutely right. Uh, there's going to be major uh, NATO response in building up forces um, and equipment uh, in NATO countries surrounding Russia, in part because those countries will ask for it, no doubt. But I think that Putin expects that to happen anyway. Uh, and I do think that it's been happening slowly. Uh, you could argue it's been in response to what he's been doing. Obviously, he probably doesn't see it that way. But uh, as we know, he is very allergic to the presence of the missile defense systems in Czechia and uh, in uh, Poland. Uh, he thinks those can be turned into offensive weapons. Um, you know, reasonable people can disagree, but it, it's a fear that I think he really possesses. This is not just rhetoric. Uh, we've seen more deployments of both uh, uh, naval deployments, uh, ground-based deployments uh, in the Baltics and Poland and, and, and Czech Republic. So I think he just expects that this will continue either way and uh, regardless of what he does in Ukraine, and uh, it has to be taken as a given. And lastly, on sanctions, to Thomas's point, um, I also think that the Russians view sanctions as a given. They think that they'll be sanctioned no matter what they do. And uh, uh, for the most part, the sanctions have been put in place on actions that deserve to be sanctioned. But on some, some of the other things, we haven't done, been so uh, discriminate. And in particular, on the SolarWinds hack sanctions, um, uh, which was a traditional espionage operation designed to break into government networks. There's that a good is, piece on this by one Dmitry Alperovich in Lawfare. Exactly. Uh, but that was a type of operation that the US intelligence community would do against Russia each and every day. So when you, when you sanction them for things that are considered to be acceptable under national norms, you just send them a signal of that we will continue to sanction them um, and the sanctions will get worse and worse. And that's why since 2014, they've been building a lot of resilience in their financial systems. They now have the MIR payment system, uh, which is widely used by Russian banks to isolate them from the need to use Visa and MasterCard. Uh, they have other payment mechanisms, direct payment mechanisms with the Chinese banks. So they're going to be, they're not going to like it. It's going to hurt for sure. But unless we sanction their oil and gas industry, I think they'll weather it just fine. And I don't see any prospect of fossil fuel sanctions, given the fact that uh, all of Europe is freezing right now and is highly dependent on Russian gas. We in the U.S. have gas prices are going up and we're actually importing ourselves Russian crude oil. So I don't see the Biden administration moving on that. And without those types of sanctions, I just don't think um, the sanctions are going to have much teeth. All right. We are running out of time. But Scott, floor is yours. Yeah, first of all, I'm glad that I seeded my, uh, uh, my question earlier because this was fascinating um, uh, debate. I want to ask, a, just scope out a little bit instead of, instead of asking Street's question about Putin, I want to ask an ideological question about us, which is to what extent do the participants in this debate right now, Tomas, Corey, Dimitri, um, uh, are the strategic judgments in some sense dependent on whether you think that the West is uh, partially or uh, not even more than partially responsible for provoking um, Putin by uh, inviting uh, Baltics and various other um, uh, um, neighboring countries into NATO, and that uh, there was, of course, the realist uh, Mearsheimer uh, response that this was a very bad idea, that Russia, of course, is going to have to respond in self-defense. And so I'm wondering whether part of this is really a sense of um, Putin in acting in a justified fashion not in the way that he's doing it, but that he's doing it, it's, it's, some, it's something that um, any 
reasonable sovereign would do under the circumstances. I suspect, Scott, that you may have found the point of unanimity among our guests, but let's find out. Corey, Tomas, and then Dimitri, in that order, let's uh, see what you all think of this question. So you are right that there is a fundamental difference in judgment between Putin and the West about what constitutes security, right? For the NATO countries, it is the belief that being surrounded by stable, prosperous countries that are accountable to their citizens, that makes them secure. And we have been trying since 1991 to persuade Vladimir Putin's Russia of that, and we have not yet succeeded. Um, and but I would add one other piece, Scott, which which is I reject the framing that Russia has a right to determine whether sovereign countries can make choices that make them more secure, because accepting that Russia's perspective on this is just as valid as anybody else's means that Poland has no right to sovereignty and security, that Estonia has no right to it. Um, so he's not only accepting the Russian view, not only um, is, is a belief that countries don't have rights they can exercise in a sovereign way, which is what Putin is arguing for Russia to have. So there is the contradiction in it um, that comes down to nothing more than we have the right to a sphere of influence. Thomas, the most fundamental, the most fundamental principle that its predecessor state and it, it itself has signed off on as the successor state is that each country can decide its security arrangements itself. And that's in the Helsinki Final Act and it's in the, in the uh, Paris Charter, both of which were signed by the Soviet Union and presumably, well, I mean, since the Russia claims to be the successor of all agreements, then that holds. So, I mean, it's, uh, I mean, they've signed off on the same principle. So it doesn't really matter, I mean, you know, I mean, even okay. I mean, we know also what agreements mean after the Budapest memorandum was trashed, right? With by, you know, in sort of Ukrainian sovereignty in perpetuity, was just gone. But the point is that it's very hard to convince anyone of that. Uh, and now, and let's even go back to the issue of why Ukraine was invaded in 2014. It was because the because. <laughs> The Ukrainians wanted to move toward the EU. It was called the Euromaidan, not the NATO Maidan. And this, the support for joining NATO in 2014 was like 24%. Now a majority wants to join NATO. This is all thanks to Vladimir Putin and no one else. And I think Ukraine in 2014 would have been perfectly happy to receive the beneficence of the of the European Union without having to worry about any kind of NATO agreement relying upon the Budapest agreement which is Dimitri whoops sorry I've sorry I, I just cut you off uh Tomas you, you were saying you, you were finishing by saying you muted him <laughs> I said it was the best possible security agreement you can get, far better than Article 5 in NATO, because these countries agree we will guarantee your independence and security forever. Gotcha. All right, Dimitri, uh, do you think there's uh, any ideological component to this dispute in terms of how, how much people buy Putin's, uh, the idea that Putin may have been provoked? No, I think that uh, NATO expansion is absolutely at the core of this. And, and look, let, let's not kid ourselves about the purpose of NATO. The reason why countries um, like the Baltics, like Estonia, uh, join NATO is not to send troops to Afghanistan and to, to Iraq. Prevent, to protect themselves wars. against the Russians. It is it, it's to protect themselves against the Russians. It's an alliance that is absolutely antagonistic against the Russia, uh, the Russians. 
And uh, Russia, by the way, has expressed interest in the late 90s and early 2000s, even under Putin, to join NATO, and it was frankly rebuffed. So um, the signals that we have sent to them is that this is not a friendly alliance that's on their borders. It's an alliance specifically designed against them. And of course, they don't like it when foreign militaries are building bases um, around their periphery, which, by the way, we don't like either. Do I need to remind you of the Cuban Missile Crisis and the fact that Cuba, a sovereign country, decided to agree to put Russian base with offensive uh, missiles on its soil, and uh, President Kennedy at the time instituted a, a blockade, which, by the way, is an act of war. He didn't call it a blockade to avoid that, against Cuba for doing so. Um, let's not kid ourselves. If China were to build a military base tomorrow in Tijuana, do you think we would let, them ha let that happen? Uh, we probably wouldn't invade Mexico, so I'm not in any way justifying you know, potential invasion of Ukraine, but we would absolutely- But we've up. done it once. <laughs> Yeah, we've done it once. And uh, by the way, uh, we are very upset when China is building uh, military bases in Africa and Southeast Asia. And that's really far from us. And we're still upset about that. So, so let's not kid ourselves that great powers are concerned when uh, foreign militaries build up presence on their borders. And they expect, the United States expects this, Russia expects this, China expects this, that people will, uh, will accommodate their interests because they are great powers. Um, that's the nature of the world we live in. And by the way, this idea that countries can decide um, uh, which military alliances they can join, why is it that virtually the entire world, except I believe about 13 countries then, uh, that presumably many of them would hold that view, do not hold the view that Taiwan deserves to be recognized as a country, that we have to acquiesce to China's decision that Taiwan is going to be part of that country and, and uh, we're going to accommodate them. Um, uh, the U.S. Is not, does not even send high-level delegations to Taiwan, much less recognized as a country. So we implicitly accommodate great powers on these types of topics all the time. But for some reason, we have not been willing to accommodate Russia. And I'm afraid that's leading us to war. And, you know, I don't think that it was necessarily a mistake to let Poland and the Baltics and, and, and uh, um, other uh, Eastern European countries to, to join NATO. But I think pushing it to the limit of Ukraine, of uh, potentially even Belarus, the um, uh, Central Asian republics, that's a step too far, I think. That, and that is why um, Russia is threatening war, because most of the invasions in its history have come either through Belarus or through Ukraine, whether it's Hitler or Napoleon or uh, the Polish invasions uh, in the 1700s and, and so many others. So they know that the country is not defensible without those um, essentially buffer states. And that's why they're acting. All right. Uh, I am going to uh, let go, uh, Tomas and Dimitri. Uh, thank you both so much for joining us. I'm going to give Corey the final word, and then I'm going to uh, take a moment of the moderator's privilege to make a couple of remarks of my own before we wrap up. Corey, uh, you get the last word today, except I for me. I'll right back to you, my friend. I'm sorry? I said, I offer it right back to you. All right. Um, so I just want to say uh, two things about this conversation, which is that earlier this uh, week or late last week, uh, the National Review decided to do a hit piece on Corey. Um, and um, uh, based on the anonymous comments of uh, uh, some congressional staff, and I want to uh, direct to the attention of congressional staff, uh, named and unnamed, uh, what happened here and why uh, this is uh, an example of the wisdom of AEI in having its foreign policy program run by one Corey Shockey. So the first thing that happened was that Corey wrote an article that was provocative and interesting. Um, and I asked her to come on uh, this and talk about it. And the second thing that happened is a former head of state of a relevant country to the article showed up to engage with her about that without being asked to. There was no invitation. Tomas just showed up because he had things to talk about with Corey about this. And the third is that when the two of them started agreeing about something in a fashion that was uh, uh, not consistent with uh, Dmitry Alperovitch's views, uh, Dmitry uh, showed up to have a super civilized, interesting conversation about it and to uh, narrow the scope of debate. 
And I just want to say this is think tank culture at its very highest. Uh, none of this was planned on my part, except having Corey on the show. It was just an organic expression of respect for a Corey herself, but also engagement with the ideas that she was expressing. And so to my friends at National Review, this is what you're attacking. And I just want to say that uh, I did not consult with Corey on this. So if, if any of that puts her in a difficult position, A, tough noogies to her, and B, she did have nothing to do with it. We are going to leave it there. We will be back tomorrow. Corey Shockey, you're a great American. The best Dim American. Dimitri Alperovich, <laughs> you're friend. also a great American. Tomas Ilvis, you're a fabulous, great Estonian and a great New Jerseyite as well. Um, no, he is. He's, uh, He's you know, from New Jersey? <laughs> well, he lived there for a very long time. Um, and so he's yeah, really a great, a great American as well as a great Estonian. <laughs> um, but um, we're gonna, we'll be back tomorrow with another great American, uh, the great Rene Deresta. Um, and then yeah. Friday we will have our annual, and I, I cough up the word annual because in lieu of fun show was not supposed to go on for a year, <laughs> let alone two years enough to have an annual anything. We will have our annual New Year's resolutions edition on Friday cheese night. All of that will start 22 hours and 58 minutes from now. And until then, Scott, can't have fun anymore, but we can have incredibly interesting, civilized debates about matters of great public importance. Corey Shockney, you're amazing. I learn so much every time you're around. Oh, you guys are so wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, wow.